Well, may grace and peace be multiplying to you in the full knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I bring greetings to you from Grace Life Church on Vancouver Island, and I just want to express our gratitude to you. We're so thankful for all of your prayer and support for our church plant there on Vancouver Island. I'm immensely grateful to the elders of Grace Life here with James and Brad and Jake and Rob and Mark and Adam. Uh, I'm thankful immensely for their support of me, their counsel to me. They're holding me accountable every two weeks in an elders meeting, and, and we, are, we are knit together. <laughs> I feel as though I'm in the presence of my own body here because this is uh, one body in Christ with our church. I'm also so thankful for how this pulpit has even fed the sheep that I now shepherd uh, for a year while they were left scattered without a shepherd. As they gathered, they were fed from this pulpit uh, from a distance. And so now it is my great privilege to stand in this pulpit before you this morning to proclaim the word of God. With that said, please take your Bibles and open with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to take you to the end of this book today, to Peter's purpose statement for this letter. I will begin reading in verse 6, in the final exhortations Peter gave to the believers there scattered about in Asia Minor. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, comfort, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written to you briefly exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the very word of the living God. May he use it to impact our hearts and our lives this morning. Life as a follower of Christ is a test of perseverance, a lifelong trek in the examination of one's faith in Christ. Hebrews 12 pictures the Christian life as a marathon, a race that requires endurance, a race that must be run with devotion and focus, a race that will stretch your will to go on because physical fatigue, dehydration, cramps, pains, and strains, and mental exhaustion will tempt a runner to quit. But the one who stops running 
is disqualified and treated as though he never began to run in the first place. And this is the same for professing believers. It is only those who finish the race, those who continue to follow Christ until the end, who will be saved. This is what the Bible says about the perseverance of the saints. One side of this doctrine teaches that those who profess faith in Christ must persevere in faith and obedience to the Lord all the way to the end in order to be saved. Not with perfection, but with a new and consistent direction. In Matthew 10, verse 22, where Jesus forewarned his disciples about the certainty of persecution, he told them, it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. Now, the other side of this doctrine teaches that all those who are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will persevere to the end as they are preserved and upheld by the sovereign grace of God. Just as Jesus also said in John 10, verses 28 to 30, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. So you must understand that salvation is by God's grace alone from start to finish. He predestined, he calls, he justifies, and he glorifies, Romans 8.30. There is a, a golden chain of salvation that can never be broken. But you must also understand that once saved, always saved doesn't mean you can pray a prayer get baptized or make any other profession of faith and then live in it whatever way you want and still punch your ticket to heaven in the end. It is only those who are faithful to the end who will be saved. In the end, those who go out from us show they were never really of us because if they were of us, they would remain with us, 1 John 2.19. These are the two sides of the same doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And you really need to understand this doctrine for your Christian life so that you can be fueled by the power of God's grace and not sucked dry by the weakness of your own effort. Coming to 1 Peter, we find a book of the Bible that gives a lot of attention to the perseverance of the saints. This letter was written by the Apostle Peter around 62 AD to believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, having been chased out of Rome and into the corners of the earth because of the animosity that was boiling over over their faith in Christ. It was just before that fire burned the city of Rome to the ground in 64 AD which Nero blamed on the Christians launching a full-fledged emperor persecution of the church. But even before the flames of Rome, Christians were hated by the pagan Roman society. The word suffering is found 16 times in this short epistle, twice right there in verses 9 and 10. And the suffering the Christians faced came upon them because of their identity with Jesus Christ. 
They were sharing in the sufferings of Christ, chapter 4, verse 13. They were insulted for the name of Christ, verse 14. And they suffered as Christians, those who profess Jesus as Lord, verse 16. This was a time of persecution, not yet being arrested by the government, not yet having their possessions taken away from them, not yet being martyred for their faith in Christ, but real and painful hardships in the everyday life from a society that rejects Christ. And under such hostility, there comes a, a certain pressure, a pressure to turn the other direction, a pressure to forsake Christ, a pressure to maybe not profess him in front of all men in order to escape the heat, to compromise on truth and morality, to tolerate worldliness or even promote godless ideologies and lifestyles to be acceptable to the culture. But to do so would be to turn away from Christ and fail to finish the race. And so Peter's exhortation for believers amidst the trials is to stand firm in the grace of God. That's the very reason he wrote this letter as expressed right here in chapter 5, verse 12, which is the purpose statement stating, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. First Peter is a, a call for the perseverance of the saints. And, and Peter strengthens Christians for this task by constantly pointing them to the grace of God. Because perseverance depends not on the strength of your belief in God, but on the strength of the God you believe in. First Peter is a comfort from the preserving grace of God. This epistle offers clear direction and incredible strength for remaining faithful to Christ in a world that is contrary to our faith. And like the first century Christians, I believe that we also need First Peter as we try to live for Christ. Because as we live in this world, there are always going to be certain pressures, pressures to forsake Christ in order to escape trials, whether it's the pressure not to display your Christianity in public or the cultural pressure to think unbiblically about sexuality, gender, life and death, or creation and climate of God's design for marriage, family, work, and government authority. The pressures are everywhere. There's an increasing hostility against Christianity and biblical truth in our own day. The ultimate source of this hostility is, of course, a hatred for the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we need to understand how this inspired letter would exhort us to stand firm in the true grace of God. So I bring your attention to the purpose statement in chapter 5, verse 12 this morning. I'm preaching the purpose statement of a letter is just a, a clever way for a preacher to preach the entire book in one sermon. 
Look at the text and note that Peter had a very clear twofold purpose for writing. There are two dominating themes throughout the whole letter. First, there is the indicative or truth statement about the true grace of God. This is what comes out of the letter as bearing witness or testifying in the NASB. This is the doctrine or teaching that Peter declares with his pen what is true and trustworthy about God and his grace. This is the theology of 1 Peter. Second, there is the imperative, which is the demanded response to stand firm. This is what comes out of the letter in exhorting. The commands or ethics that Peter directs as a demanded response to those who have claimed to receive the grace of God. This is the application of First Peter. And together, the message becomes rather dynamic. It is theology aimed to impact, life-changing doctrine. As the indicative of God's grace lays the foundation and the motivation for the imperative of standing firm. So let's consider the first point, which is the indicative statement. This is the true grace of God. Peter says in verse 12, I have been bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. The word bearing witness, epimartureo, is literally to testify upon, to give an official witness. And it gives us a picture of Peter standing up at the pulpit before the congregation with his right hand on the Bible and lifting up his voice to declare a word that he has gotten directly from God. The root of the word martyreo is where we get our English word martyr from, which elevates the intensity of this testimony to the point where where Peter and those who will follow him are even willing to lay down their lives for this message. Just as we know, the Lord told Peter in John 21, and as church history records, he did seal his witness with his life in martyrdom, being hung upside down on a Roman cross under the wicked emperor Nero. So if you're going to give your ear to anything... You need to give the time to hear what Peter wants to bear witness to. And his proclamation throughout the letter is the true grace of God. Of course, grace is a a familiar word to us, being found 155 times in the New Testament. Peter used it eight other times in this short epistle. Simply defined, grace is understood as the undeserved favor or kindness of God in getting that which you do not deserve. Grace is something you cannot earn. You cannot purchase it with money. You cannot obtain it with your own effort. Grace is an unmerited gift of lavish generosity. The grace of God is expressed in two ways. For one, there is his common grace by which God gives physical life and the enjoyments of creation to every living person on the planet. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 says, Our heavenly Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends a rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's his common grace in providing for all his creatures, even though they do not deserve it. Then there is also his special saving grace by which God gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead in their sin. He removes the guilt of their lawbreaking. He forgives their iniquity. He clothes them in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, and freely gives them eternal life. That's the saving grace in providing salvation for believers, something that they could never deserve. This is the grace of God that Titus 2.11 says has appeared bringing salvation. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. In his letter, Peter labored to bear witness to this saving grace of God. He covered every aspect of salvation, exalting the glorious grace of God a work to plan, accomplish, and apply redemption for his people. Look back at chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 with me to see saving grace in redemption planned. Peter began by reminding persecuted believers that although they are exiles in this world, strangers and aliens, they are the elect of God. He calls them the elect exiles or the exiles scattered about who are chosen by God. They may be rejected by the world, but they are chosen by God. A title pointing to the eternal plan of God to save a people from for himself. That of all the peoples of the earth, God has set apart, he has selected out or handpicked a, a distinct group that he will save to himself. God's choice is completely unconditional, unmerited, undeserved, not based on anything in any of us, not based on our inherent values, certainly not any goodness within ourselves. Not even our decision to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. God's election is based on his grace alone. Totally undeserved. In fact, verse 2 explains that election has taken place according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is not simply a future awareness or God's foresight of those who would be saved. God has not chosen those whom he will save because he knew something about them in the future. God certainly did not look down through the corridors of time into the future to, to see who would believe in Christ and who would reject them, then set those apart for himself to save them because of their future faith. That goes directly against the omniscience of God. Since he eternally knows all things, he never needed to look into the future to foresee anything. It goes directly against grace. Since his election would then be merited by our decision, it goes against the reality that no one born in the flesh 
with that sinful nature as sinfully and spiritually dead would ever be able to choose Jesus Christ. But we would continually reject him and continue in our sin. God's foreknowledge cannot be his future awareness of those who will believe. Instead, foreknowledge speaks of the eternal love of God for his own people. The eternal love of God for his own people, knowing them relationally. It's one thing for me to say that I, I know Wayne Gretzky. We live in Canada. Everybody here knows who Wayne Gretzky is. and We could recite some facts about him. Probably I'm not a great statistician. But it is a, a totally another thing for me to say, I know my wife, Janelle. And the knowledge here that, that Peter is speaking about of God's knowledge of, of his elect from before is, is a personal, relational knowledge. Look down at verse 20, where it says that, that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, he was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but appeared in his incarnation in these last times for the sake of you. God didn't simply have a foresight or a future awareness of who Jesus would be. He didn't need to discover who the Christ is. But God's foreknowledge of, of Christ is in the intimate union of the Holy Trinity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell infinitely and eternally in perfect union and relationship with a perfect, holy love as eternally one. So back in verse 2, when it says the father chose a son according to his foreknowledge, it means that election is his plan to save those whom he loved from eternity. A love that God has for his own from before the foundation of the world. A love not because they are many. A love not because they are mighty. A love not because they are better. But a love because he chose simply to love them. This is the saving grace of God in election. A pillow for us to lay our heads down to rest at night as Charles Spurgeon once said, if my salvation depended on me choosing God, I would never be saved. Then in verse 3, note that God's eternal plan also secures the salvation of his elect all the way to final glory. God being the one who chose upon whom he would act with saving grace is the one who causes the new birth and grants a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not, not a hope like the world hopes. Not some wishful thinking based on mere speculation, such as the hope that the Oilers are going to win the cup. Sorry, had to say it. Just started a fight between Jacob Spence and the rest of his elders, his Winnipeg against Edmonton last night. 
But this is a, a hope that is grounded in, in heaven through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter says. A, a hope that is based on the sure truth that Jesus Christ was dead on a cross, buried in the grave, and came to life three days later. It is a hope that because he rose, we also will rise with him. A hope that is further described, verse 4, as an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. Is that enough adjectives that Peter has given us? It is indestructible. But wait, there's more. Verse 5, Christians themselves are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation already to be revealed in the last times. Salvation has been fortified in heaven, locked up tighter than Fort Knox with divine omnipotence, protecting it on every side. From election to glory, God's work of salvation is unfailing, unquestionable. That's the plan of redemption under the sovereign, saving grace of God that Peter would have you here witness to this morning. Next, look at chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 to see saving grace and redemption accomplished. As Peter bears witness to the cross of Jesus Christ, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now that word redemption pictures salvation in terms of an, an act of divine liberation from the captivity and enslavement that we were born into to sin. The term was most, most often used either the freedom of a slave from his slavery or of the release of a captive from war. In both cases, the freedom was granted at the payment of a great ransom price, a heavy payment of, of valuable silver and gold with great portions of treasures paid to set that one free. In our case, we were born as slaves to sin, imprisoned in our own futility, Peter says, a complete emptiness and inability to ransom ourselves out of those chains. The very core of our nature being corrupt and eagerly producing more corruptions. Every, every thought and intention of our hearts, every desire and affection, every motivation and attitude, every decision we made, every word we spoke, every choice we have carried out, even the righteous deeds that we think we have done are, are filthy in the sight of God because we sought not to please him but to serve our own passions, bowing down in self-worship. No matter if you grew up with the most religious kid on the block, 
being born and raised in the pews, or if you had never darkened the door of a church before in your life, every single one of us is born as a hater of God and a lover of sin. We all stood condemned before our holy king with a, a ransom demanded that is infinitely beyond our ability to pay. No silver or gold could purchase our freedom. But God, by his grace, sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, take on full human nature, to be made just like us, to, to live the perfect life we refuse to live, to face all the temptations that we face, but remain without sin. Then as our substitute, he went to the cross like an unblemished and spotless lamb to be slaughtered, to pour out his precious blood as the payment for our redemption. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, chapter 2, verse 24 says, pouring out his own life in our place, paying the wages of sin, which is death. And he gave a, a price greater than all the silver and gold in the world could ever pay. He, he gave an infinitely valuable price because he is the infinite God incarnate in human form and, and Christ satisfied all the, the penalty that you and I deserved right there on the cross once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous so that we might be made the righteousness of God, accomplishing redemption incomplete. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, he rose victorious, proving that indeed it is finished. He was vindicated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, taking his seat as Lord of lords and King of kings, so that he might save sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. The most urgent and pressing need of the hour right here on this spiritual battlefield is to have repented from sin and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, to forsake that old master and to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you won't, you've already lost. King Jesus is the conqueror. But if you do, you have true freedom in him the full forgiveness of sin, everything we have ever done against our holy God, past, present, future, ransomed, paid by the blood of our precious lamb, Jesus Christ. That's the accomplishment of redemption under the sovereign and saving grace of God. There's also God's saving grace and redemption applied in chapter 1, verse 2, Peter said that God's election is applied through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And this is distinct from the progressive sanctification of Christians in which we become more and more holy, being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. 
This is positional sanctification, whereby the Holy Spirit takes a person and sets them apart, consecrates them for holiness unto God. This is the same as God causing us to be born again. When the Holy Spirit does a supernatural work, like the wind that blows wherever it wishes, entering down into the depths of a human heart and transforming them into spiritual life. It is the regeneration or recreation of a new creature, the resurrection from spiritual death into a newness of life in Christ. It is the miracle of new covenant heart surgery by which God takes out that cold, dead heart of stone and replaces it with a living heart, a new spirit with new desires and new affections, new thinking and a new direction. He places his spirit within the redeemed and you become holy, set apart, sanctified unto God. Verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, that is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was proclaimed to you as good news, the gospel. Redemption is applied as the Holy Spirit takes the gospel of God breaking into your heart, heart of stone and plants the word deep within you, bringing forth the root of faith. And suddenly the, the spiritual blindness is gone as the lights come on and you see the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the glorious application of redemption as he calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light Chapter 2, verse 9. So these are the unfathomable riches of God's grace that Peter bore witness to in this letter. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation accomplished, planned, accomplished, and applied completely by his sovereign grace. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in perfect trinity to bring about the salvation of God's elect. And Peter urges you to know this is the true grace of God. This grace has a particular strengthening effect for those who are facing suffering and persecution, trials, pressures against their faith in Christ because it is as we continue to keep our eyes fixed on Christ that we are able to go step by step down that path of perseverance in faithfulness to him. Look at chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter continually sets Christ and, and his suffering, ultimately his suffering on the cross for our sins, not because of anything he deserved, but because of what we should do. 
Peter sets it forth as the example, the paradigm for us to live our lives enduring the things that we must endure. Christ, who did no sin nor any deceit, was found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for you were continually strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the true grace of God for weary believers in a world that hates Christianity. Next, let's consider the second point, which is the imperative command to stand firm. Back in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says, I have been exhorting you. The other part of the purpose statement is exhortation, which is the word parakaleo, literally to, to call alongside. It's the same root word that is used as a title for the Holy Spirit as our paraclete or helper. It pictures someone walking down the road and at times being threatened by various difficulties, sometimes stumbling or, or perhaps even veering into the ditch every now and again. But on that difficult road, someone comes alongside you and puts their arm around you and speaks to you and, and guides you in the way you must go. Sometimes the exhortation can be rather gentle as a word of comfort or encouragement to keep you going, to strengthen you, to put wind under your sails as you continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But other times, the exhortation must be stern as a, as a word of correction, warning, or even rebuke. The same word was used already in chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter said, I, Beloved, I, I urge you, I implore you, I plead with you. In chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, I exhort the elders. I give strong instruction and direction. Again, there's an urgency pouring off of Peter's pen. Peter's exhortation throughout the letter is to stand firm. Stand firm. This is a command. This is an imperative verb. This is not a matter of suggestion for you. This is the Christian duty. There, you have a moral obligation to hold your post. It is a military word calling for the forces to rise up and stand face to face with the opposition. To not back down, to even dig in your heels, lift your shield and sword, and stand firm in the face of all attacks. In this case, Peter had the hostility of a godless society in mind. As the Christians were being battered for their faith in Christ, they were being beaten for the name of Jesus. And it's important to know that the exhortation to the church was not to attack the world in return, to retaliate, take vengeance or, or revenge. The way of Christ is always to compel them to be reconciled with God as ambassadors of the gospel. 
never to take the world by brute force. We must stand firm, not slay those whom are opposing us. But neither is the exhortation to flee and hide. The church must not separate herself to the point where we no longer engage society. We are the salt and light of the world. And what, does, what good does it do if we hide the light or remove the salt? The command is to stand firm, to engage those around us, to stand firm, to, to not compromise on truth and righteousness so as to blend in with the culture so that we might go unnoticed or even build some friendships with the world. It might be a neat defense mechanism for a chameleon to camouflage itself with the surroundings so it will not be eaten by a snake, but it is absolutely intolerable for the church to be conformed to the world in order to escape persecution. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God, James 4.4. The command is to stand firm, to stand up and stand out, to be distinct in the world, to even dig in your heels and not give an inch on truth and righteousness. The same word is used in verse 9 to resist the devil, to not allow the devil to encroach in on your life. This echoes Ephesians 6, of course, the exhortation to stand firm in the spiritual battle against the schemes of the devil. Our stance must be in the strength that the Lord himself provides in his might. And our stance must be in the, the full armor of God with all the spiritual resources we receive from our captain. Our wars for the truth of Christ to uphold his lordship, to exalt him as savior, to preach his word, to obey his commands, to honor his name, to follow his example, to love his people, to defend his bride, to give him worship and bring him glory, all to the ruin of Satan as he flees when the people of God stand firm with our faith in Christ. Our stand is a stand in the power of the gospel for the glory of Christ. In this letter, Peter exhorts believers to stand firm for Christ in every area of their lives. Peter calls for a firm stance in our personal holiness. We are to pursue holiness with moral purity in our private life. Chapter 1, verse 13 to 17. Therefore, having girded your minds for action, be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Standing firm with perseverance in your faithfulness to Christ demands that you take sin seriously. 
that you put it to death more and more in your life, that you would be conformed more and more into the image of the one who has redeemed you with his own blood. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Peter calls for a firm stance in our our corporate unity, in our local bodies, our local churches, having a, a fervent love for one another, chapter 1, verse 22, being built up as a spiritual temple, stone by stone, with mortar holding us together in a strong unity, with true worship being offered up to God through Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. We are to be a, a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for God's own possession. Verse 9, we are to pray together. Chapter 4, verse 7, forgive each other. Verse 8, show hospitality. Verse 9, and serve one another with our spiritual gifts. Verses 10 to 11, elders are to shepherd the flock with eagerness and compassion to be examples for the sheep. Chapter 5, verse 4, verse 1 to 4. The younger men are to submit with gladness, verse 5. And everyone is to show humility towards one another. That's how we stand firm as one body united on the battlefield. You think you want to fight that fight on your own? Good luck. Peter calls us to stand firm, united together. Together we stand, by ourselves we would fall. Peter also calls for a firm stance in our culture. We must be the best members of society, living lives that validate the gospel that we profess with our mouths. We are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war on our souls and keep our conduct excellent amongst unbelievers. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. We should be those who are eager to submit to the government when we understand rightly that they are given to punish the evildoers and praise those who do good. We should be those who are the best servants in the workforce, honoring our masters even when we are treated unfairly or unjustly in our eyes. We should have the strongest marriages and the healthiest homes, living according to God's design for his creatures to impact society from the closest sphere of our own influence. We must be zealous for what is good and righteous, even if it leads to persecution, meaning we will speak truth into the issues of sexuality, genders, life and death, law and order. We will show the world what true righteousness looks like with kindness, contentment, and a consistent life of integrity. And ultimately, we will love our neighbor best by loving God first, pointing them to the one who alone is worthy of all our surrender, all of our lives. We must always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us with gentleness and fear. Our stance in society is a stance of living for Christ in the open. When Caesar tells us to bow to his images, we refuse. 
When he tells us we cannot pray to our God, we pray by the open window. When he tells us we cannot proclaim Christ, we obey God rather than man. We are exiles in this world, but we are elect by God, known by God. And our lives will surprise the unbelievers around us. Verse chapter four, verse four. That we do not go running with them in the same flood of dissipation that they dive into. Such a weighty exhortation, this high demand on our life to take seriously our, our private lives, our, our church life, and our life in society would be completely overwhelming. But we're left up to our own strength to stand firm. But all of this comes back to the, the grace of God. It says in chapter 5, verse 12, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the true grace of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having come to know grace you do not leave grace to take your stand apart from grace. I like to tell my congregation, we never graduate from the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Rehearse the gospel truths to yourself every day. That is the power of God unto salvation, and it is the power of God for sanctification. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the message that Peter would have to Christians trying to live faithful lives to Christ in a world that is increasingly hostile to our faith. That you would hear his witness, his testimony to the true grace of God put on display in his works of salvation, and that you would stand firm in it, in that true grace. Let's pray. O oh God of all grace, you've given us so much more than we deserve. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you save sinners by your mighty and gracious power. We pray that you would send us out from here this morning as those who stand firm in this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.